Right, while we go. Sorry about that. Right, okay. Where we started, <laughs> make sure you've got your Bible open at page 859, William. And the reason I want you to have your Bible there is because you have just got to love Peter. He is an apostle who knows what it means to be human. He's just like us. I realise that you've got the Apostle Paul there, who's this sort of academic giant, this missionary visionary, and then you've got the Apostle Peter. He's just a normal guy with a big mouth and his heart on his sleeve. And I don't want you to lose the shock of the fact that God's word starts with Peter, an Apostle. Peter, and that's a shock, that Peter would be a sent one from Jesus, that he would be writing down and putting in God's word, the Bible, Words through Peter. I suppose that as we come to realise what a shock it is that Peter could be included in God's purposes, we begin to get a bit of confidence that maybe God might even think about using us. So yes, Peter is a shock. Yeah, he was a docker, he was a fisherman, he was not highly educated. There's the possibility he might not even have been able to read. That's why he had a scribe write down the letters uh, for him. Uh, He was the first, I admit, to step out of the boat onto the water with Jesus. He was the first of the disciples in so many ways. He was the first to name Jesus as the Christ. He was the first fella to go to the empty tomb. He was the one singled out by Jesus after the resurrection as the one whom, uh, whom Jesus wanted to see first. But he was also the first and most prominent one, as Kosh mentioned, to deny. To publicly turn away from Jesus. And to, do, and to betray him. He went, underwent massive trials and beatings because of, the way, uh, because of being a believer. Peter knows exactly how it is to try and stand for Jesus. He was somebody who loved Jesus but failed him, loved Jesus and paid a price for standing for Jesus. In fact, Peter is just like you and me. Can I tell you, he is the best person to help us to get to know what it means to live for Jesus in this world. Or if you're somebody who's trying to make up your mind whether you want to live for Jesus or not, he's a great person to go to because he's the guy who has messed it up and if there is a mistake to make, he has made it. He's what we would call a trophy of grace. Somebody you look at and go, there, but a Christian? Whoa, that God must be awesome. He's the best person to help us to get to know Jesus because in the days of his flesh, the Lord Jesus had a busy mate and his name is Peter. Peter's the one who seen Jesus in every circumstance, in every situation, knows what it looks like to be part of Jesus' kingdom. And this is what we see here in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's perfect for this job. Apostle simply means sent one. So what we're being told straight off the bat here is that God has purposefully set aside somebody to give us the inside track on what it means to follow Jesus because God immediately is telling us he wants us to succeed. He wants us to stand. In fact, if you flick to the back of the, the last chapter, what's it say, verse, uh, verse 12? Uh, last chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, in other words, Silas probably doodled it down for him, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And what they to do? Stand fast in it. God has given us a means for you and me to stand fast in the trials of life in a world that's hostile to Jesus and he's given us the top guy, the Apostle Peter. And that is why we're going to spend 16 weeks picking this apart 
some very big clever people hundreds of years ago said, if you want to know everything there is to know about the Christian life, First Peter is the one to turn to. It was Martin Luther who said that. It was quite a big, a big dude, physically and yeah, theologically. And we need this, don't we? We need this because of verse 1. Can you see it there? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world. They needed to hear from Peter because of what it was they are and what it was they were facing. And that, that phrase there, to God's elect strangers or uh, foreigners or aliens, uh, that, that's the idea there. It's taken straight out of the older part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and it's a picture that was built up with Old Testament Israel. God's nation, do you remember, they were enslaved in, e- in Egypt, and God set his love upon them, and brought them out from under the oppression of Pharaoh. He brought them to himself at, at um, Mount Sinai. He gave them the principles of what it looked like to live in a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. We call it the Ten Commandments. He gave them the sacrificial system when they failed that covenant, and he said, you are my elect and you are strangers in the world. You are a, you're, you're not at home in this world. You're different because of something that I've done in your life. And the people who are on the receiving end of these letters, you can see they're from uh, five areas in modern-day Turkey. Uh, you, know, you can see in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They're probably believers, most of whom weren't from a Jewish background, most of whom had been converted, maybe in Rome, but they were there in a nation that knew very little about who Jesus was and what it meant to live for him, and they felt like outsiders. They felt like aliens. They felt like strangers, because God had set his love upon them. Now, I don't mean to miss this, or pretend that it's not important, because the bottom line is, if you are a Christian, or you're thinking of becoming a Christian, you need to realise that you have been blessed to be weird. I'll say that again. You have been blessed by God in order to be weird. You have been chosen by God in order to be misunderstood. Just like Jesus, when he came to do good and to save, was it red carpet rolled out? No, it was we, we think we're going to kill you. And that is always the way in a world that's antagonistic towards God. So if you are somebody who is a Christian, you know what it means to have that tag, um, God's elect strangers. That's who we are. That's who we are. Every believer is a stranger, an exile, an alien, is not at home. People say, hold on, you're a bit odd, you don't quite fit in. You're on the edge of society. Why? What marks God's people out? It's not that they don't fit in by the clothes that they wear or the music that they listen to, but what makes them stand out or not fit in is that they don't treat as important the same things that other people treat as important. They're dancing to a different tune. They're living for different priorities. What separates God's people is how they respond to disappointment or pain or rejection or how they use their goods and their opportunities, their utilities to serve other people. About how they don't join in with the whining about everybody else. In how, and the, the word of Peter, in how they do good. Even if it costs them. Even if it hurts them. That's how they stand, stand out. Now, if uh, now sometimes that brings us, well, it tells us, doesn't it? Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
Anybody ever had one of those days when you come home and somebody says, how was your day? Oh, grief. Of all kinds of trials. If I'd have known it was going to be like this today, when I got up in the morning, I would have just hit the snooze button, pulled the tube over my head, and I wouldn't have got out. And here Peter is writing, so because they're called and blessed to be a little bit different, to be set out for Jesus, they are facing trials and griefs of every kind. And it's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Because don't you think, well, if I do good, uh, if I live good, God's going to bring me a nice life. That's what we like to think, isn't it? It's almost like a little bit of a payoff, tip for hat. No. I mean, who'd want to be a Christian? What you call to as a Christian is to trust Jesus, live for him, serve other people, do the right thing, and know that when you do, it might get you killed. Any takers? Any takers? And there they were. They were being pushed, squeezed, yanked, and pulled. The people that were being written to. They were taking care to live a good life and to speak for Jesus but they were falsely accused, as we could go through all the different verses, seeing that, see how this happens in each, of their, in each of the different circumstances, but they were falsely accused, they were slandered, they were misunderstood, they were misrepresented. Now this was probably not statewide um, persecution. Remember when we've just come off the back of the, uh, the series in Revelation? The uh, book of Revelation was written in around about AD 90 to 95, by which point, uh, it's about 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, by which point, the full might of the Roman Empire has decided these Christians we do not like. But this was written in the early 60s, only about 30 years after Jesus uh, died and rose again and ascended to heaven. And by that point, the Jews of, uh, Jewish nation had organised uh, persecutions and hostilities against Christians, but not the Roman Empire. That was, it was sort of brewing. So the sort of griefs and trials and abuse that people get is normal, everyday life stuff. Like in speak. We haven't had a council-based edict says, make life hard for the Christians. But we do feel increasingly pushed to the edge, don't we? And we know what that means. We don't always feel like we fit in. It's social ostracism. We look down upon, we push to the edge. We, sh- we suffer discrimination. Uh, people tell half-truths about us, lies or rumours, sometimes abuse. Sometimes there's economic pressures because you won't do certain things at work, then it, you, well, you're disadvantaged. And that's what they were facing. Why? Well, well, what sort of stuff were they up against? Just flick over to chapter 2, verse 12. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, so it's not just me who thinks you're aliens, uh, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So unlike the rest of the world that says, if it feels good, do it, trust your feelings and your desires, dive in and indulge yourself, these believers were saying, no, I'm going to stand against my heart that knows how to lead me into trouble. I'm going to stand against my sinful desires and there will be things that I will say no to. And if you're around a bunch of people who are saying, yes, 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 and you stand up and say no, do they like you? Nobody ever likes it when people point out, even if they're not with a wagging finger, just by their choices, nobody ever likes it if, well, your inadequacies or your false hopes get pointed out by somebody else. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. I'll start reading partway through the, the verse before it. It's, it, oh, hold on, wrong one. Uh, I'll start at verse 21. So this you were called because Christ suffered you, uh, uh, suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should 
follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Have you found that sometimes the hardest thing about doing the right, right thing is that it is hard. Sometimes you try to act right in a situation that is jacked up, messed up, and who ends up suffering for it? You do. And so next time, you don't say, yay, you think twice, don't you? They were up against that. Chapter 3, verse 16. Can you see that? Chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, I'll start reading uh, partway through verse 15. But in your heart, set apart Jesus Christ, uh, Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to any, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So just for trying to live for Jesus, people are having fingers pointed at them. And notice it's not just they speak about you, they speak maliciously about you. If you don't have people speaking maliciously about you, you want to ask questions as to whether or not you're letting your light shine before people. Are you standing up and being distinctive enough for Jesus? It's a good question, isn't it? Because here, Peter seems to assume that's the normal thing. You make choices to honour Jesus and serve other people, people will speak against you. Therefore, if people are speaking against you, maybe you're going through a season under the Lord's good hand where he's been gentle with you, or maybe you're too at home in this world. Chapter 4, verse 4. Here we go. There's one for speak. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. You don't party the way they party, and they heap abuse upon you. Do you notice most of this getting at isn't violent, it's just... Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They haven't got a clue, have they? Because it does hurt. You try and do right by somebody, and they run you down, it hurts. You try to do the right thing because you want to honour your saviour, and people just laugh at you, it hurts. Verse 14 of chapter 4. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You need to see what this is saying. In other words, this whole section, all those verses we've looked at there, it means that we are going to be recognised and seen as weirdos. Now don't be seen as that because you're doing some sort of freaky behaviour that is weird, in a weird way, be Jesus weirdos, do you know? You know, sometimes there's that, you know, uh, there's that book, uh, verse in the Bible that says, I'm quite happy to be a fool for Christ. And there's some of us who sit there and they stroke up it and think, wow, what could I do with that one? No, no, don't be one of those people. You do good, you do right, you act for Christ, and it will be thought of as weird. And Jesus, well, I suppose we live for him, we live for his kingdom, we'll be made different, we won't be doing the same things that everybody else does. We won't be going out getting drunk, sleeping around. We will be honest with our taxes and our benefits. We will not be running down people who get in our way. We will not be whining with everybody else at work about the boss. In our families, we will speak well of our husband and our wife, and we will honour them rather than just use them as a utility. And I know that it is hard because, well, we want to fit in. Anybody here not want to fit in? We all want to fit in. And I just, I want to ask you a lot of questions. You can answer me back now. It's good to get to answer the pastor back. Guess what their temptation was when they were finding that it was hard when they didn't fit in. 
What do you think they were tempted to do? Hide, yeah. Let's go dark. Let's privatise my faith. Let's turn up on Sunday, on a Sunday and sing with gusto and pray. Let's be really reliable and regular at the Bible study, Thursday night, sure should be. Let's go to those things. Let's do God talk when I'm around the Christian mates. But then when it comes to all the choices I make about my family, or when I'm in the workplace, or I'm at the school gate, uh, when everybody's sitting around at a social and we're chatting about stuff, I laugh at the same jokes, I pursue the same things, I just go dark, go undercover. Anybody felt that temptation? Me! Thank you for your honesty. I do this every week. I don't want to be thought of as a freak. Every week, I hide my light under a, uh, under a rock. And you and me, we're not the only ones, are we? Our temptation is to back out, eat off, make this life our home. Um, and the problem is, the bottom line is, we've got people in our lives, haven't we, that, that drag us down when it comes to our faith. Some of you have got those people in your family. And you come home on a Sunday night and you're, I'm going to live for Jesus. And within ten minutes you start, oh, it's like body blow after body blow. Or you've got that person at work. And they're just there just to drag you down. It's just like, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm, be, I'm actually going to be nice to that person. And they do everything to just like needle you and provoke you. And then when, and then when you just, that moment of weakness, you let go. And they're like, ha ha, I told you a bunch of Christians are no different to everybody else. Oh, it's difficult, isn't it? It's so hard. And that is why the Apostle is writing. He's saying, stand fast. How, Peter? How? We failed again and again and again. How on earth are we going to do it? That's a question that's worth knowing the answer to, isn't it? That's the thing that you lot need to know today. That's what you need from God's words. That's what you need the Spirit of God to burn into your heart today. How is it that I can stand fast as a Christian? Or if I am not a Christian here today, and I'm not assuming for everybody that you've all decided to trust in Jesus. If you do trust in Jesus, what is it that he has done to help you do that? What has he done? So, does he say, right, the best way to survive this one is to go off to the woods with a big supply of beer, shotgun shells, and wait for the rapture? No, although that's very tempting. The millies set a great den down there. No, what he does, it's so simple. He reminds them of who they are. There is nothing you forget more in your life if you are a Christian than who you are. Some of you are trying to think of all the different things that you forget a lot. No, no, can I just be very straight and very straightforward with you and tell you? Because it's the thing that the Bible reminds us of the most. I can tell you for a fact, the thing that you forget more than anything is not to put lecky in the meter or not to make sure there's tea bags in the pots or not to make sure there's milk in the fridge for the husband. Well done today, wifey. Good girl. Good girl. No, not that that you forget the most. The thing that you forget the most is who you are if you're a believer. And so he tells it to us straight. He wants to lift their eyes above the horizon of their little problems, lift their eyes up and remind them as to who they are because of what God has done. The world hasn't ended. You can keep going. Do what God has called you. So let's, in the remainder of our time, just race through just three things. I want us to read together. In fact, what we'll do is we'll read it out loud together, verse 
2. So can you spot it there, chapter 1, verse 2? Are you ready? Who have been chosen... Oh, let's try that one again. Are we ready? Okay. Are we ready? Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now that is absolute dynamite. Why? uh, Three quick things. Okay, number one, if you're a believer, you are called by God. Why does that make a difference? If you're called by God, it tells you what makes people a Christian. You can become a Christian only because God calls you. God calls people to make you a Christian, so don't you dare try and take too much credit. Don't you dare. The essence of how do you become a Christian? Answer, by God's plan, God makes us a Christian. From eternity past, he intends and says, I'm going to claim that one as my own. It's as clear as black and white here. It's got the word chosen in that verse, and in the previous one, it's got the word elect, which means when you elect, it's about your choice for something. Okay? So if, there's, if Joe Stanley is a mem- to be a member of Parliament, oh, help us. If Joe stands to be a member of Parliament, what happens? Does he elect himself? No. What I do is I act to elect Joe. If you're God's elect, it means God has acted to make a choice for you. Uh, now, I just need to check something here, because some of you might query about what it says in that verse. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So some people come along and say, aha, what happened was, he pulled a bit of a swift one. God, who is able to do such things, looks down the corridor of time and he says, who's going to decide to choose me? And what he does is, he foresees that and says, I'll choose them, I'll get ahead of them. The only problem is, with that idea, is the Bible. Because it doesn't say God foresaw them, it said, for new. And in the Bible, that word knowledge and foreknowledge is always a relational word. It's always got relational connections in it. I suppose you could translate it like this. Uh, God pre-loved us. You see that? He sort of set, for reasons that are totally his own, he set his love upon his people. So you were loved before time began. God elects us. Now this word is amazing. I hope that, I just want to camp out here just for a second because I need to drive this home. Because if you forget this, you're going to be in dire straits. When no one desired God, when no one wanted God, God chose to pursue them. If we were waiting for someone to choose God, we would be waiting for a long time because none of us would do that naturally. We're enemies. But God chooses those who would never choose him, the unlovely, the wicked, the sinner, people who are just like me. If not, I would be eternally lost. If not, I would never have loved God on my own. He loved me first. We don't pursue God first. He pursues us first. God's Love is electing and choosing. God loved me before I knew him, sent his son to be the sacrifice to pay for my sin. I am not a good person and that's why he loved me. I was a deeply um, flawed person who is an enemy of God by nature, but I was deeply, deeply pre-loved. 
I've done nothing to earn this. This has been given to me as a gift. You sit there and go, Steve Casey, what was he thinking? And I join in with you and go, oh no, it's great, isn't it? The upset is electing love on me because me know him good. Now, doesn't that make you full of hope? Doesn't that make you full of hope for that person you've prayed for again and again and again and again? Doesn't it give you confidence that there is nobody in speak that you cannot talk to about Jesus? Because if God has set his electing love on them, nothing is going to get in the way of them turning to him in faith. Doesn't that fill you with hope for you? Anybody here screwed up and sinned in abundance this week? I'll put my hand up for all of you. If it weren't for the pre-loving, electing love, wouldn't you be fearful? Wouldn't you be like, oh, I know. I've been showing up what I'm like. Maybe he'll dump me. When you sin, what you do, as somebody who's been loved by God, what you do is you renounce that sin and you cry over it because you think it's dishonoured the Saviour I love. But you praise him and say, but I'm elect. Thank you, Jesus. Can I tell you the Christian response to when you see what you're really like and see your own heart through your own sinful actions? It is never first. It is never and must never be first. I will change. Because past history is, you won't. The first response of every Christian when faced with their own sin and failure is, thank you for Jesus. I have a saviour who has loved me since before the beginnings and foundations of the earth. And he has done what it has taken to secure me to him, even through this sin which has not caught him by surprise. And it's when you let that sink into your head and sink through your pores and drive down deep, it's at that point where you say, well if he's been with me through that, then I know I can change. Not in my strength, but in his. So to those of you who keep on making silly promises to God when you mess up, or just battering yourself down, beating yourself, gritting your teeth, Christian, I'll try harder, I'll try. No, you go to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you love me. And because you love me, I know there's hope that I won't be lost and I will change. When I was a little kid, well, it's worth me pushing this a little bit more, isn't it? Um, some of you have never been chosen for anything, have you? I desperately, when I was a kid, when I was seven, I desperately wanted to be chosen for something. And I wasn't. Got it. I desperately wanted to be chosen to be a milk bottle monitor. Did anybody here ever get to be a milk bottle monitor at school? You did! I hate you. Oh. But Mrs. Marshall, who was a particularly horrible head teacher, picked other people to be the milk monitors. And I did all my best ploys. I, I crept, I sucked up, I did all of that. I was very good. Uh, didn't get to be a milk monitor. Until one day, somebody was away. And she scanned around and saw that there was nobody else suitable. And she was like, go on. Yes, I got to be milk monitor. I got to run around because you know the little uh, glass bottles of milk we used to get at school. You remember those, Andy? You used to get those, and everybody got one at play, play, uh, break time. But the milk monitors, they got to collect up the bottles and they put.
them these cool buckets and marched off down the school corridor and stacked them up in the proper crates ready for the milkman to take them away. And I was in my element, baby. I'd been chosen to be a milk monitor. And we stacked them all the milk bottles, built the crates. And I was so excited about being a milk monitor. And then somebody said, oops, oh, what's wrong, what's wrong? We've jammed the buckets. Jammed the buckets? Somebody put the wrong bucket in the wrong one and it was totally jammed. And I was so full of the, full of the joy just being a milk monitor. I said, oh, fix it. Typical me, jumping in, think I can fix everything. Jump in, oh, fix it. Grab the buckets and just lightly tapped the buckets against uh, a bar that was used for hanging up coats. And to my horror, the bucket sort of exploded. Oops. Who should walk in? Smash. Ooh, smash the bucket. I, did, I was trying to think what to do. You will never, ever be a milk monitor again as long as I've breath in my body. Get back to class. And as soon as I got out of the room, and I was walking down that corridor that seemed very, very long that day, two came up my arm. Because I'd been chosen, and now I was excluded by my own failure. That's not what we had been told here. Jesus fixes the bucket. When he sets his love on you, it can never be undone. Don't forget that this week, because you're tempted to, aren't you? Don't forget that you are called by God. Sometimes you say to yourself, why am I going through all of this? What's going on? He can't obviously love me. And what this verse tells us is, he is there ahead of you in it, before you ever knew there was even going to be a problem. Tomorrow will be scary, and you're going to go out to a world where people will not like the fact that you're Christians. Can I tell you that around you is God's electing love? Which is more powerful, them or that love? Don't forget who you are. Well, I'm only shy on time. I'll have to miss off the last one. We'll do one more before I finish, okay? Sanctifying, uh, if God, if the, he's the God who calls us. He's the one who makes us a Christian and wraps us up and makes us secure. Second of all, well, God is the one who changes us. Verse 2, let's look again. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Okay, what does this mean? It means that God does the changing of you. Now, there's sort of two meanings in this word, sanctify. Does anybody know what the word sanctify means? So you've got the two, you could, might, might get one of the two, or maybe you've got both. What's it mean when something is sanctified? So, brilliant, okay. Who in their house has got a sanctified teaspoon that is only allowed to go in the sugar bowl? You know, you sanctify a teaspoon, so that that teaspoon is the one that spoons in the sugar, but then to mix the tea, you've got another, yeah? You've got the hallowed perfect teaspoon, the sanctified teaspoon. Am I? Thank you. Thank you. Anna, what, sorry? You have a plate that's sanctified. Who gets to use that? Nobody but you, okay? When um, uh, we went to visit uh, Jane's grandma before she died, uh, up in some mining town up north. Where did she live? Countess. Bishop Orkle, an old mining town. And she had all this crockery set out on the wall. Poxy little house, tiny little working class town. But it, it, the, sort of the crockery worked inwards like this. So on the outside, there was the normal everyday 
um, crockery that sat over there and over there, and we were allowed to even like sort of do our little, uh, well, we use it as we like. Then in, inside there was the next, the really important stuff, the special days of the year, that kind of thing, and uh, you weren't allowed to touch that. But then in the middle, Royal Dalton. Crown Derby, sorry, Crown Derby, even more important. And he said to Grandma, he said, Grandma, can we use the Crown Derby? I'm special. No, that is set apart for a special occasion. But who could be worthy enough? She said, that Crown Derby is for when the Queen visits. And she died before that happened. So, it was sanctified for no good reason. Was it fake? <laughs> She's rolling in the grave right now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Anyway, what's the point? Set apart for a teaspoon crown derby or fake crown derby, it's set aside for a particular person. Now, this word has two twin meanings in the New Testament. It is both a positional thing and a process. So what happens is the Spirit of God takes the work of Jesus and the electing love of God the Father, and he says, right, I'm going to wrap you up in it and take you through the process of it. So if you are a Christian, you can be described as, and this is a bit of a joke for us a lot, isn't it? Holy. Catherine is holy. If you only live with us, you'd probably argue. But no, a positionally, she has been granted and gifted a status before God, as you are one of my set-apart, sanctified, holy ones, and because that's what you are and have been made, that's your position, I am going to begin a process that you're going to kick and scream against. But I'm going to make you what I've made you. I'm going to be at work transforming and making you new. So the things that you used to get excited about, you're less excited about. The things you used to live for, you live for them less. The things that you used to think were weird and for religiously Christian people, like reading the Bible and coming to church and, and praying, you suddenly get up in the morning you want to do it. And the things in your life, certain behaviours or attitudes that you had, suddenly you, you're like, hold on, I want to try to forgive that person who did that to me. That wasn't there before. Where did that come from? Or I want to take some of my stuff that I used to use and keep all for me, and I want to share it with other people so that Jesus gets the glory. That is a work of the Spirit of God. He grabs a hold of us, he applies the work of, uh, uh, of Jesus Christ, planned by the Father, and he begins a process of change in us. And he knows that we're messed up. He knows our record, and he knows how, how hard the job's going to be. And we're going to kick against it. So that is the direction of travel for everybody who is a believer. And this is really important. I need to just apply this very quickly in just a couple of ways. The first one is if you're not uh, familiar with this, what, what we're reading here today, you would think that what happens is, to be a Christian is, you decide to trust and follow Jesus, get forgiven, and then you're on your own. Then you've got to try really hard and, and be good. And then have mates outside of the church who go, well, you're not a very good Christian, are you? I'm trying! Now, what the message of the Bible is, is that the Spirit of God is going to take you on a journey. It will be painful, because we try to lay hold of our sin too often. We try to grab hold of it, and when he tries to prize it away, he has to do things to make that happen. But he is taking us on a journey to the point where, at the end of it, we look back and go, 
I was involved, I made decisions, but I've done things that I never could have done before. It must have been God at work in my life. He is changing me. And some of you, and we were talking about this at our fellowship group the other night, sometimes you read some of the things in First Peter and you are honest enough to stand there and go, I just can't do that. I, I, I don't know if I can. And it's at that point that you're in the safest place you could possibly be. Because you're at the end of yourself. And this is what will happen if you're somebody in whom the Spirit of God is working. What will happen is, you'll go like this, I just can't do this, but I love Jesus, so I want to want to do this, so I'm going to pray to Jesus who I love, trusting that he knows best for me, please Lord, make me want to do this thing that I don't think I can do and I don't really want to do. And suddenly, you've let the Spirit of God into your life and into your heart. You've started to live differently and he begins a process of change to the point where six months, twelve months, ten years down the line you don't look the same again. But if you don't start off with I love Jesus and I know I need strength to change if you just try to fix this you're just going to go into a cycle of boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. Now it will be the Spirit of God that gets the credit And in the same way, I just want to point this out to say there are ways in which we as a church can show that we don't believe this. One of the ways in which we show that we don't believe it's the Spirit of God who sanctifies us and sets us on this route is when on a Sunday morning, perhaps I preach an abundantly dud sermon or perhaps the music doesn't go very well or perhaps somebody has an argument at the back of church and it's the day that you've bought a friend or a visitor. And you walk out of church that day going, God couldn't have used that. If only the preaching had been better, the music had been better, and everybody had been nice to each other, then this person would trust in Jesus. What are you saying is you're at the source of your confidence to see people spiritually changed? You're saying it's the quality of the oratory, the quality of the music, the niceness of the people. If we're not waiting for for quality oratory, quality music and quality people to be the thing that converts people in speak, we're going to be waiting a long time. We need the Spirit of God to sanctify people, don't we? Let's get it a little bit closer to home. Those of you, and don't you know it, are the, those of you who are parents and children at this church, there are ways in which you're tempted to not believe what we've just been talking about. Because your heart aches for the soul of your kids, doesn't it? And when you see them in church on a Sunday, staring out the window, clickety-clackety on the phone, utterly indifferent, but then the second you talk about the Valentine's brothers, they're just like, all animated. What you're tempted to do is to say, we're not doing something right here. The sermons need to be shorter, the sermons need to be longer. We need more visuals, we need better songs, we need to get more involved. No. The Lord may use those means, but fundamentally the thing that grabs a hold of a Christian child is not purely because we've got all our ducks in a row and organised it, but because the Spirit of God grabs hold of a heart in such a way that even if you are dull, boring, irrelevant, their hearts are captured by Jesus. You see how there are ways in which we might not, might not believe what the Apostle Peter is saying. 
So he says, you need to remember who you are. You are called by God and set apart by God. Well, if you had more time, you set apart for Jesus to obey him and not obey all the other things that they make demands upon you. You are chosen, sanctified and covered by the blood of Jesus if we had more time. So next time you're struggling and next time you're feeling like just going dark and, and going undercover, you need to remember these things. When I'm tempted to, uh, to privatise my faith, when I'm tempted to go dark and shut my mouth or just go along with, uh, and speak about or do the things that everybody else does, I'll stand up when I remember who I am. When I'm tempted to jack it all in, I need to remember that he has called me and set his love upon me. I am chosen to be part of something bigger than this little world. Now can I ask you, as I finish, does that shake you? Is that going to shake you this week? Are you going to allow it to shake you? Your life may feel like it's on the edge, but you're not, because you are God's elect strangers. You're chosen strangers. So some of you have been doodling some stuff down along that way, turning to a prayer. Some of you, in a moment of quiet, we're going to have in a second, do you need to repent of unbelief that has led you to compromise in areas of your faith? Do you need to do that today? The Lord put his finger on everything? Do you need to rejoice that he chose you? Do you simply need to sit in your chair and just say, thank you, Jesus? Do you need to sort of stand with a struggling brother or sister? Is there somebody... Just like the Apostle Peter was sent to encourage them and us, uh, do you need to be the Peter? Do you need to just praise him that you are covered by the sprinkled blood of Jesus and saved and secure for eternity? We'll have a moment of quiet now. You need to have the opportunity to do that quietly in your seats. Then we're going to stand and sing together and then there'll be a moment or two for people to be able to offer up open prayers. Let's take that moment of quiet just while the musicians get themselves ready.